Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople, welcome to the podcast. Today, it's my great pleasure to welcome Richard Park to the show. Welcome, Richard. Hey, Jeremy. Great to have you on. Richard is the Senior Vice President of Worldwide Sales at Survey Gizmo. They're an online survey platform that I've used many times in the past. Today, our main topic is going to be frontline, first line, all about how to survive and thrive as a first line sales manager. We're going to talk a lot about sales leadership, so it should be a fun podcast. But before we get into that, the first question is, what's your favorite sales book of all time and why? It's the book that without fail, I recommend the most to aspiring sales leaders, to team leads and to sales managers. And that book is The Servant. The subheading underneath it is a simple story about leadership. And I think it applies to really the topic of of first-line management. And I think I actually recommend it, and I have recommended it for so many years because it had a tremendous impact on my, call it my leadership philosophy or my style, if you will. And it served me well. And the successive managers and leaders that have worked for me have also, I think, in many ways attributed that same book to you know a real understanding and I think an impactful style of leadership on people that have worked for them. So the, the servant I think is probably my all-time favorite one. And when I look back at it, the one that's had the biggest difference. I presume it's in the category of the allegorical types of books that's fic- more fiction, but you get leadership and sales lessons in the process. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, the it it's told in sort of stories and it's an easy read. I mean, I think I finished it the first time uh, literally on a plane flight from the West Coast to the East Coast, it's a simple read. And it kind of follows a manager as they're sort of working through that that first year and really trying to understand how to understand each salesperson and how to really be the best, I guess, leader and mentor for the people under them. Second question, I've been switching it up lately and asking folks, rather than what was the first thing you ever remember selling, I'd like to start asking folks, what's your most unusual or esoteric hobby or collection or what have you? This one's a, one that I have a lot of fun with. And I, I have to say, it's mainly been because of A, the sheer amount of miles and travel that I've done, you know, over the last, I guess, you know, 20 years of my career or so. And it's also been a function of the sheer convenience of being able to do this. So oddly enough, I collect snow globes and I get them in just about every city that I visit for the first time or a city that I vacation in or a city that my rule is. I spend at least 24 hours in this city. So, you know, three-hour layover at an airport in Dubai, that doesn't count, even though they may have, you know, glorious desert scene snow globes that everybody could really enjoy and purchase. But got to be there for 24 hours. And, you know, I think uh, last count, I've got over 200 of these small snow globes from various cities around the world. I always look for them. I always try to find really good, unusual ones. So that's probably my weirdest hobby. And one that, you know, I'd be remiss if I, if I didn't admit right here on this podcast that I do. But it's, it's actually a really fun collection. You know, my kids love looking at these things. And there's always a good bit of memory associated with each of these purchases. That's great. Yeah. Anything that reminds you of the better experiences. I guess it makes some of that travel more fun that you're on the, always on the hunt for something interesting. Sure is. Well, great. So let's let's transition into our you know our, our topic of the day, which is again about sales management, particularly first line sales managers and sales leadership. Perhaps we start by just winding your career back a little bit. I guess way back to the DevX days. 
Um, so yeah, I think because that's I think the first time you became a sales manager. Is that right? You know, having the opportunity to kind of go through various roles there. You know, I was I was an SDR, I was an AE, I was an AM, to team lead, to first line manager. Right while the company was evolving and growing, you know, gave me a great opportunity to just have a keen perspective on how to manage people. But secondly, it set the stage, Jeremy, for me to want to be a leader pretty much the rest of my career. You know, once I had a taste of sales management, sales leadership, I, you know, I never wanted to look back. When you were selected to be a sales manager there, what was it that made you a good candidate for that? You often hear that companies promote, say, the highest performing sales rep. So I'm just wondering, why did you get identified for that role? It was two things then, and these were particular, I think, to me early in those days. I had a reputation to be probably one of the hardest working employees. Maybe not the smartest or most efficient, <laughs> but definitely the hardest working. You know, I put in a lot of a lot of sweat and a lot of work. And I think that reputation as a salesperson and as a team lead, you know, really kind of cemented my reputation as really a doer, as an execution, you know, focused person. And I think I got selected because, you know, this was a it was a really hard territory. This was really, you know, kind of the northeast region. It was extremely competitive. We just sort of slid into you know, kind of the first big downturn in tech around, you know, 99. So one, it was because, you know, they, the company trusted me and they knew that I could work really hard and I could figure things out. I think the second, you know, reason, it's still something that I look for today when I promote people or I consider people for leadership is, you know, I was always just raising my hand. I always wanted to take on more. I always wanted to do more. I, was, I wasn't afraid to be the person, you know, sitting on the edge of their seat, just saying, okay, what else? What else do we need to do? What does the company need? What does this customer need? What else do we need to do? So, you know, it was similar to that hardworking sort of work ethic I had, a known willingness to just constantly do more and to do what was right for the company and for the customers and for the people on the team. And it made me somebody that the company really could trust. And certainly my reps, you know, knew that they could trust me because I was going to work hard for not only the company and the customers, but for them, you know, as well and sort of forged, I think, a foundation of a great relationship. I'm presuming as a rep, when you were saying that you asked what else, it wasn't that you were asking the very generic question to your own leadership, what else? It was you were actually asking yourself what else and then actually doing those things proactively. Is that correct? I think so. You know, when looking back, I can't honestly say, Jeremy, that I, you know, had this sort of plan in my head to build that kind of reputation or to just, you know, always know what the more was that I was asking for. I think it was more instinctive. Again, this is something that I look for, you know, in future leaders. Do they have the the DNA and the instincts to want to achieve more, A, and B, I think, to want to do more, not just for themselves, but again, for the company, for the goals that we're aligned to, for our stakeholders, shareholders, for the customers, right? If they have that that instinctive quality that they possess around wanting to do more, but broadly and more than just outside for themselves selfishly, that to me is a tremendous good quality for a leader to have because they're only going to need to broaden their perspective even more, you know, as they move through successive, you know, hopefully higher areas of responsibility and leadership. I was once working at a place where I remember there were certain high performing AEs or AEs in general who you could classify them as looking to do more 
But when they would go to their managers with ideas that did not have to do with like their immediate sales performance, their managers actually viewed that as a bad quality Yeah, because they, they would describe it as being distracted from the task at hand. But you seem to be advocating something different. So that's why I'm kind of probing on this one a bit. Yeah, it, it's an important distinction. And I think the way I would frame this one up is it's about the right structure. I have seen many, many times where very eager reps raise their hands a lot, you know, maybe too much. And there's there's a ton that they want to do because we know these reps that always just kind of want to provide things. They want to contribute and they aspire to leadership, but they follow a shiny penny on their own and get distracted. So I always say structure solves this. And what I mean by that is create a bucket of extracurricular activities and make sure that those buckets are aligned with, again, your culture, the goals of the organization, the goals of the sales team. So for example, people that want to raise their hands when they come to me or they come to another manager, we know what those buckets are to let them go and stay busy with outside of hitting their quota. So for example, if somebody's really eager to drive innovation or to create a new process or to really, really you know, go investigate new tools, we'll tell that salesperson, hey, listen, why don't you talk to our lead for tools and process improvement and go see if there's a small project for you to go be part of that task force? Or hey, you, very eager sales employee who wants to do more, why don't you go look at this events, fun, and culture committee? you know, whatever you call it in your company and go join that committee so you can go get involved. Or, hey, you know, you salesperson that wants to do more, we have this little program for you to participate in. So as long as there's something for them to do that's within a structure that's going to benefit them, benefit the company and their growth and learning and also align with goals, you know, it's a win-win. And I think what happens is there isn't a structure like that in most sales organizations. And so everything that the, the, the reps raise in their hands, they say they want to go do, feels like it's a distraction. In many cases, they just want to contribute. They want to be part of something. They want to do something bigger to help their development. So my suggestion to sales leaders is create a structure or work within the structure in your company where people can, again, find little buckets of activity that are, again, aligned with company goals, company culture, and then they're being involved in that and actually get the exposure they need, but also are, are focused on it. And then I think the main thing is, Jeremy, to the point you were making, it's all about balance. You got to tell a rep. Hey, I expect you to do this in your in your extracurricular time, or I expect you to you know focus no more than an hour or two on this a week, or whatever the rules are, and say to them, you know, your number one job here is to hit your number, but we want you to also benefit from all the other things we do as a company. Just make sure you know you focus on on hitting your number first, and I think that message has to be delivered from from their manager. As a first time sales manager. What were some of the biggest challenges you faced or mistakes that you made? These are going to be ones I think a lot of sales leaders will relate to. My first one, especially, I tried to do more of the work of my rep than I needed to. Giving up that control in the deal cycle and not wanting to take over, you know, and dominate on a conference call when, you know, your AE isn't asking the right questions or isn't gathering enough qualification information and you know, we've all done it as managers. We sort of take over the call and then we use it as a pleasant coaching opportunity for that rep after the fact. And we end up leaving our rep sort of a little bit demoralized in some cases or, you know, taking the wind out of their sails. So I think my first challenge was not trying to sell for them and not trying to do too much, but, but leaving the selling to the rep and being a coach and stepping away from trying to run a deal or have them run a deal the way I would run it 
So does that vary based on the tenure of the rep? So if you hire a new rep, would you as a sales leader tend to be more involved in those deals or is it still the same thing, which is coach them beforehand, coach them afterwards, but let them do their thing so that they can learn and grow even if they're new? I'm going to say it's the latter. Give the framework to your reps, give them the process map, you know, whatever it is you use and even the more experienced ones. And this has happened many times where, you know, I've had 10, 15 year salespeople come and work for me, you know, early in my career. And I always knew, Hey, I'm going to tell them what the expectations are, but I'm going to still let them kind of run deals the way they do. It's different again, I think, when you have a newer rep because you do have to be prescriptive. But I like to let people fail fast earlier. I like to let, especially a newer rep, really learn through understanding what their mistakes were. The learning curve, you know, isn't as steep that way. And you tend to have better quality interactions with them when they're making mistakes. And if your style is such where, you know, you're direct, you're candid, but you can also give really good, helpful feedback, you create, I think, a bridge to that rep and you make them feel like, hey, this is a safe space. My, my manager's actually allowing me to take chances and make mistakes, but they're giving me the lessons and the process along the way. And I'm, I'm really going to be bought into this because I'm actually getting the good feedback and I'm getting coaching. So I, I think you do need to let go with those reps, new or experienced, and sort of let them follow along and learn how to actually do things the way you expect them. Yeah, I think that's great advice. The other thought that came to my mind with respect to not selling for your reps was a comment that a, a sales leader made recently. It was kind of an open rhetorical question, but a very deep question, which was, do you know how deals get done in your company? Mm-hmm. And yeah. I was reflecting and in a lot of places I've been, you know, it's hard to say, right? Was it the rep? Was it the first line sales manager? Was it even somebody more senior? Do you have a philosophy about knowing that in the companies that you've worked for? I think it's such an important point, especially with re- with respect to a first line manager. They do need to understand how deals get done. But I always tell the manager, I always tell them, look, the extent of your knowledge on how deals get done should be to serve one purpose. And that should be to remove friction from that deal process. And so I always tell them and I say, look, you know, you need to know where the friction points are and you need to support your rep, you know, and all the the 10 other legs involved in this sale. You know, you have to help the rep understand how to orchestrate all of that. The best thing you can do as a sales manager on these deals is to know where these friction points are to remove that friction and help the deal get done by supporting things first internally in the company. Secondly, providing any sort of risk management comfort in the deal. So a great sales manager often will get on the phone with a large deal, large customer, and kind of provide them a bit of an assurance that, you know, hey, representing the company, I'm this person's manager. We care about you. We're giving you our commitment. You know, we've all seen that. We've all heard it on a deal. But I think it can only really take effect if, if again, the friction points are worked on. And that comes from having really good intimate knowledge of how internally things get done. Which friction points should sales leaders look at in general to find where the problems are? Every company is going to have, you know, obviously really, really different internal gates and internal processes. But with respect to kind of larger deals, it's always about what the sales manager can truly impact. And I think the number one, the number one area to really dig into is on the sort of like finance and contracting side. How are we going to improve this? How do approvals get done? How do I deal with non-standard terms and 
other strange, you know, requests that are going to come through from a procurement or a legal department, because that's really where deals get stuck. And one of the techniques that I've used with first line teams that have reported up to me is we appoint what are called department captains. So every first line manager, if you've got, you know, two of them, four of them, five of them, whatever, you appoint them to be the face of your sales organization to the other department. And so finance is a critical one. I have, you know, three, three first line managers that are only finance facing. They attend finance meetings. They meet every stakeholder and ask them about where, where they work in the deal process. They learn about new things that are going to impact sales. So the department captains then, you know, they report back to me. They report back to the other leaders and they tell them everything going on in that department, you know, on a monthly basis. So that's one area where, you know, friction's removed because we have somebody facing our most critical business partner streamline some of these processes because we know how to work with them and we know where deals can get stuck and how to get in front of them because they're also building relationships. We all know when you've got internal relationships, that's the fastest way to get things done. Totally agree. And I, I love that. Well, I held you back from your the second challenge that sales leaders face or that you face. What was the second challenge? The second one for me was shifting from looking at like my own individual world of data and metrics and seeing, you know, a bigger, broader world there. And it wasn't so much knowing what to do with metrics or how to design them or how to leverage them. It was understanding how to look further ahead. This is a big problem for a lot of sales managers. We are taught, we execute in the month, in the quarter. And I think the hard trick for a first line manager is really, I think, getting through your first couple of years and thinking about the jump to second line or third line. And to do that effectively, you have to, as a first line manager, really understand data and you have to understand metrics and you have to plan a quarter ahead. You know, for the first time in your career, you're looking actually further out and you're planning for performance. You're planning for attrition. You're planning for coaching improvements and you're looking at a broader set of data and metrics to do that. I think that was a big challenge, you know, because I was just always focused on sort of what I was doing. I was focused on maybe what a smaller team was doing. I had to really learn that skill and flex that muscle a bit, if you will, to really, you know, kind of understand, hey, this is the purpose of all these metrics broadly, and here's how they align, you know, with the company. So I think that that was a, a good challenge for me, but one that I really had good leadership and mentorship above me to help me understand how to how to really use data to be a sales leader like you, I have a physics background and I try to I want to quantify everything, but not everything that matters is measurable. Do you think that's also something that people need to pay attention to when they move from first line to second line and so on? I absolutely do. It brings me to the thing we always talk about. I know, um, you know, there's this distinction between sort of the art and the science of sales. Our good friend, John Barrows kind of talks about that a lot in his writings and his trainings and his blogs. And this is kind of the art side that I think about it. It's, it's not as measurable and it's not as, I think, accessible from a data standpoint, but there are intangible qualities that really great first-line managers have that I have seen really, really take shape in terms of allowing their reps to perform greatly above and beyond what those reps thought they could do. And I think the, the one that comes to mind is really you know having EQ and possessing empathy as a sales leader when your reps know that you as a manager are invested in them and care about them, I always try to quantify it. I, I tell managers, hey, when you care about them and you show that concern for their career and their development and well-being, you're always going to get an extra 10%. I 
I always say that. Just watch. Start, you know, going on a heart campaign here and really get to know your, your reps. Know them individually. Start tailoring some of your development plans for them individually. Invest some time in them. You're going to get 10% more. And those managers always come back, you know, a, a couple quarters later or a month or two later and say, Rich, you're totally right. Their performance jumped, jumped, you know, 12% in bookings month over month or something. And I never really know if it's truly that, but I've seen it. There seems to be a correlation between that, that empathy and EQ that you cannot measure that a good sales manager has to getting, you know, higher performance really on loyalty, which is, you know, it's not something again that we can, we can kind of measure outside of just attrition or employee engagement surveys, but you get loyalty. And uh, that to me is just part of the art of sales management is how to do that and how to really build you know, something like that on a team. Something that I've started to do is to take the concept of net promoter score. And I've been doing, uh, I guess, an employee NPS of that pulse every month. And I, I asked two questions. The first is, would you recommend a career at our company to a friend? And then two is what would make you more likely to recommend or what one thing can I do to make this a better place to work? Love it. Love it. It gives me two data points, right? It tells me, takes the temperature of whether the things that I'm trying to do, right? To build a great culture and a high performing culture actually are actually happening. And then two is it, it gives me immediate feedback or at least monthly feedback, I should say, on what matters to people. The number one thing that's always cited is career path and career trajectory. Every single place I've been. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that gets to your point around those tailored development plans for people is almost feels like the only way to do that, right? That it's, I remember when I was in my twenties, especially, I would sort of say, what do I need to do to get promoted? Mm -hmm. And my managers could never really answer that because there's a lot of intangible in there. Yeah, no, I, I totally get that. I, I use a couple of models to answer that question. You know, the first model that I use, and again, this is, this is really just a fancy slide in PowerPoint. But it's what I call a competency model. And it's got seven sales skills. And then it's got various levels of development. Like, are you a beginner? Are you intermediate? Are you advanced? Are you proficient? And we tell the entire sales organization, hey, you as a salesperson, if you want to be the most outstanding individual performer, you want to master these seven skills for our industry and our way of selling. These are the seven. And this is how you compare yourself to it. And you're going to be graded against these seven skills. Well, guess what? You want to be a team leader or you want to be a manager. You've got to be at least proficient in these seven skills. And you've got to really major in at least two of these. So, you know, if you want to go on the account management track, you got to really master, you know, value selling and relationship management. You got to pick a couple things that you're going to major in. And that's the track for you. And if you want to be a account management leader, you, you stay on that path. And doing that has helped people really understand, A, what they have to develop. And I think B, um, where they can go and then C, the most important thing is what are the actual things that they can do from a development standpoint? If I want to master the, the relationship management kind of track, if you will, is it an outside training? Are there books for me to read? Do I need to you know, interview great account managers and customer success people? Like, how do I do that? And the manager says, well, here are the things we do for the relationship management learning track. And they show them that. They say, here's, a, here's some stuff in LinkedIn learning. Here are some really cool blogs. All right, so we've got a curriculum for each one. And it's really helped people understand. I think the second model that we use is we have a model around what we expect from every, every manager team lead. We, we say, your job is this, you know, kind of the box. It's the new box for you. 
of everything you're responsible for. Here's your new box. And then here's everything outside of it that you can do. And those two things together help people have more clarity on what it takes to get promoted, what it takes to move along a certain career path. And then secondly, what they need to do to perform and to continually learn in that role. So, you know, those two models have really served me well to provide clarity about career progression and what it takes to get there. You rattled off two of the seven, but besides value selling and relationship management, what are a couple of the other ones? I'll name, you know, probably the most critical. Another one would be business acumen. Anyone who wants to be a fantastic salesperson or wants to sell the big, gigantic, you know, whale million dollar deals, or if you want to be a great sales executive, sales leader, you have to have business acumen. And I define that as understanding financial concepts that are used in the businesses, segments, and the industries. You know, for us on the insurance side, we have to understand the economics of an insurance agency. How do they make money? What are the business problems they face? And what are the business problems that our software solves? And how do we quantify that solution or set of solutions and use cases into dollars? Dollars saved, dollars made, dollars earned. That's business acumen. It's a whole series of things to learn. And I always tell young aspiring reps, learn about a balance sheet in your customers' organizations. You know, maybe you serve multiple SMB type businesses. Go learn about what their balance sheets look like. Go learn about how they do accounting. Go learn about when they file for taxes and what taxes look like. Go learn about how they get financed and understand what their finance structures are for their businesses. Are they just small business loans? Do they have some other associations or institutional funds that they're part of? And what ends up happening is the rep begins to really understand, wow, all selling truly is, is, is matching solutions to a bunch of business problems that can be solved and earning a financial outcome for that customer. So I think business acumen is the big one. And it takes a lot of years of really learning and digging in and and understanding how to develop that financial understanding. And what it allows a rep to do or a manager is to talk about value. And it's the underpinning of value selling, ROI selling, right? Solution selling. And I think the next one, Jeremy, just to kind of round it out, the next skill that's extremely important is what I call technology acumen. And this isn't just for people in software. This is for any modern, modern selling job today. You really have to have an understanding of what tools are out there tools to help you for your job. The days are gone where you can be a, you know, an extreme, awesome individual contributor and not have the benefit of tools. You just don't see it today. And people have to leverage tools, whether you're a manager or whether you're a line salesperson in order to be effective. So I think technology acumen is the one that we really stress a lot because we want every salesperson, if they go to their next job, to really understand what are the tools that help them. And if you're a manager, what are the tools that magnify your ability to coach that truly, truly allow you to have scale? There's so many great tools there that allow coaching to be scaled, to allow a first line manager to do their job much more effectively. So, Yeah. And on the technology side for managers, the conversational intelligence category, standalone or integrated, where you can review call recordings and provide written feedback I think is just a killer leap forward. The tools today and what you have, I mean, you're right, it, it is leaps and bounds. And I think the biggest innovation in first line management is the ability to really interact with coaching and calls and to be able to provide that feedback, you know, in, in real time in some cases, 
it's truly changing, I think, how coaching and first-time management is done today. Well, we covered a lot of ground. Is there anything we either didn't cover or that you want to leave the listeners with? Again, on the topic of you know having effective first-line managers, when I have polled and asked you know, successful leaders that have worked for me, you know, what was the single greatest thing that I, you sort of learned while you worked for me? It could have come from me. It could have, you know, come through some other osmosis process in the organization. I tend to get, you know, one answer from first line managers that, you know, is consistently the same. And it's, it's where I think, you know, I wanted to sort of leave this last point for any first line managers listening or for any, you know, aspiring folks who want to go into those roles. Sales management is truly an apprenticeship. And what I mean by that is to really learn to be a great sales manager is not the same as being a great sales leader. These are not the same. And if you want to truly, truly excel in your career, you want to make great amounts of money and be a great leader and manager, you need to find other great leaders that are working in sales. If you don't have that, you need to find it. For me, looking back on my career, I had two incredible mentors that I apprenticed under as a sales manager, a sales leader. And I saw all the things they did. I watched them speak on stages and mesmerize audiences. I saw them deliver incredible, you know, analytical presentations on sales strategy. I, I saw them live and breathe everything about being a great sales leader, sales manager. And I chose to emulate that. I chose to follow them. I chose to want to do that. And I think it, it helped me understand the value of teaching other first-line managers. So apprenticeship is the key. Before you know it, people are following you. And you know, if, if, you, if you can't figure out why for the first few years, that's okay. You know, it's because you're, you're doing things right. So I think for all first-line leaders out there, you know, we know your job's hard. Don't forget about, hey, there's a path up to the top for you, find people to apprentice under, learn the things that you really can take from them. And, you know, focus on leadership, focus on everything about what it means to be a great leader and not just what it means to be a great manager. Yeah, we truly stand on the shoulders of giants. Well, thank you so much, Richard. If people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? You know, just find me on LinkedIn. LinkedIn is the easiest, best way. I'm one of the people that does check in mail regularly. So that's the easiest way to connect. Once again, I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Laura Hall is our executive producer. Our artwork is by Greg Klingshern. This episode was edited by Peter Lopinto. Subscribe to us on your favorite app to learn more immediately actionable best practices from our awesome guests. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.